Today's scripture reading will be Luke 1, 46-55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their throne, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is God's word. You may be seated. O great Father, we are blessed, we are so blessed to live in your grace, of knowing that it is through your love and forgiveness that the righteousness of Christ has covered us and has allowed us, Father, to come in as your children into your embrace and into your family. We pray always to be humble before you and before everyone else on this planet, Father, because of that fact. To be modest at all times before you. Help us to always recognize not just the greatness of your power, but the greatness of your salvation that has come into our lives. And help us, Father, at all times in giving us strength and courage to share that with the people around us. And as we study these texts this morning out of Matthew and and Luke primarily to, to remind us of the great story of the Nativity, the Incarnation, we ask that you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way, Father, that we do turn toward you more fully in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of... Holiday movies that come out this this time of year, a lot of Christmas movies, seems like the oldest genre of movie that Hollywood has produced over the years are the holiday movies, the Christmas movies. And one of the more contemporary movies that has become a favorite of the Absher family is a comedy about a, a human being who believes that he's an elf because he lives in the North Pole with a bunch of elves. And uh, his name is Buddy. And... Uh, it's just this improbable movie, as you can tell. But at some point, he realizes that, that all the differences between him and his fellow elves come from the fact that he's a human being. And learning this fact, he takes a trip to New York City in order to discover who his real biological father is, and you know the rest of the story. But he, he's sort of an odd character, having grown up in elf culture all of his life, and he smiles all the time. And finally, this New Yorker comes up to him and asks him the question, why do you always uh, smile all the time? You're always smiling. And Buddy the Elf says, I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite. There's something about smiling. There's something about smiling. 
I started doing the, the radio spots for KTSA, and, and, and now we do some stuff on ESPN, about 13 years ago. And I was, I was learning how to, to write the stuff and, and, and how, to, how to be recorded and how to speak and try to do all of this in, in, in 60 seconds or less. And uh, during that learning period of time, I had a, a couple of great teachers. One guy was by the name of Bill Norris who uh, helped me to know how to breathe when you're trying to get all of this information in one minute. And the other was Ben Bailey, who uh, maybe the first or second week that, uh, that we were doing this, he said, why don't you try reading that with a smile on your face? And so I tried it. And voila, the, the reading voice changed. It was brighter, it was sweeter, and it was more joyful. You know, most of us have heard, maybe, maybe all of our life, that it takes a lot more muscles to frown than it does to, to smile. That's actually not true. It takes <laughs> about the same amount of muscles. But here's the thing. There was some research that was done uh, uh, several years ago. A lot of it was done in England, but you can find it in an article entitled Try Some Smile Therapy. It's in Psychology Today. Uh, it was about uh, three or maybe four years ago that it was first published. But one of the things that they, they said was kind of, uh, uh, kind of a, a, a neat finding for these researchers is that, is that smiling does bring about a change, and smiling is actually something you can make yourself do. And what they discovered is if you take an ink pen, and they tried it with a bunch of stuff, popsicle sticks, chopsticks, if you take uh, a pen or a chopstick, put it between your teeth, and think about smiling, guess what's going to happen? You're going to start smiling. So why do I tell you this? The next time you find yourself on the pew with somebody that's kind of grumpy, stick your finger in their mouth and tell them to think about smiling. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I, we're down here trying that experiment as we speak. But you know that smiling has benefits, right? Smiling has benefits. It makes us attractive to others. It changes, enlightens our moods. It's contagious. It relieves stress. Smiling actually boosts your immune system. It lowers blood pressure. It releases all of those endorphins in your brain. That's the, uh, the feel-good Chemicals that get released in your brains, it releases serotonin, which is the mood stabilizer, keeps your mood stabilizing. When you smile, you're just in a good mood. And all of that about smiling and good mood and endorphins and serotonin, it's just a reminder that human beings are wired to experience great joy. In, in a normal day, being a normal Joe, a normal human being, we are wired to be able to look at things of beauty and to look at, at things that are lovely and things that are noble and things that are dear to us and sweet to us and feel tremendous joy. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about the Incarnation, how God the Son became the son of a carpenter. And we looked at what it meant for him to be the son of a carpenter, that he became a human being and was raised by human beings, and yet at the same time, he was the son of God. Last week, we saw that he is the son of the conflict, that he is a prince of peace. And one of the great messages of Christmas is that there is peace being established between God and man and man and God. And there's reconciliation and there's forgiveness and God's gifts of grace and all of that come streaming into our lives because He is the Son of the conflict. That that peace 
that we experience with God is the product of the conflict that he brings into our lives when we realize that we're not all there is to the show. That there is a God who created us, that there is a God who made us, and that there is a God who loves us in spite of the way that we have messed up our own lives and a lot of times the lives of people around us and His good creation. But this morning, as you can see from the slide, the title slide this morning, He's also the son of the songs. When you read the nativity story, and again, most of this information is in Matthew and in Luke. And when you read the Gospels about the birth of Jesus, what you find is there is a lot of joy. There's a lot of worship. There is a lot of praise in the story of the birth of Jesus. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of pain. But it's also the story of people recognizing God come into their life and praising Him and worshiping Him in joy and rejoicing over the ways that He has changed them in that moment. Think about Elizabeth. It's, it's from Elizabeth's womb that the herald, the one that is going to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah that's going to come. She's been unable to have children up to that point, and now she's announcing to all of her neighbors that she's going to have a baby. And she, along with her husband and along with all of her n- neighbors, when John the Baptist is born, they give, they give a, a blessing to God. They praise God. They rejoice in their happiness. And it's not just Elizabeth, it's also Mary. In Luke chapter 1, this angel by the name of Gabriel, he comes and he tells Mary that she is going to be the mother of the Son of God who is going to be born into the world. And her response is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, what Alfred just read for us. When she goes to visit Elizabeth, her her relative, and this piece of, 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 of Scripture, this text is known as the Magnificat. She sings out to God, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices. The verb of joy is to rejoice. I I have this joy that cannot be contained. I've got to express in my spirit the joy that God my Savior has given me. There's also Zechariah, who is the husband of Elizabeth. He's also the guy in the story of the birth of Jesus who has to suffer nine months of muteness, unable to speak because of his hesitancy to believe that here he is in the temple, in the holy place, and this angel shows up and tells him, your wife, who's never been able to to have a child, is going to have a child. And he's hesitant to believe that. And as, a, and as a, a way for him to remember the greatness of that moment and his hesitancy, he can't speak for nine months. And the first thing he does after that baby is born and after that baby is named is he gains his ability to speak. And in gaining that ability to speak, he praises the Lord for the redemption of Israel. And then in Luke chapter 2, you have these angels. The angels have just been around forever and ever and ever and ever, and they've seen all of the things that God has done. And on that that night, when they show up in front of all of those shepherds, out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, and they announce that a Savior has been born, what do they do? They praise. They sing glory to God in the highest. And to those guys, those shepherds, those, those fellows who are out there in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night that those angels sing to, 
about the greatness of God and announce about the grace of God being born in Bethlehem and the Savior is going to be the Lamb of God. They leave those angels after the angels disappear. They leave that place. They speed off to Bethlehem. They see everything has happened just the way that the angels talked about it and they leave that little cave where Jesus has been born praising God because of what they have seen. They're glorifying and praising God. You have Simeon later. He's waiting all of his life to see the redemption of the earth and Israel and God's people and Gentile nation in the Messiah. And God tells him that, Simeon, you're not going to die until you've been able to see the Messiah. And he sees the Messiah There's Mary and Joseph taking him to the temple to be presented to the Lord. He takes the baby into his arms. He blesses the baby and he says, I can now in all of this joy leave the earth in peace because I've seen God's redemption. And he praises God because he's seen that salvation. And then last but not least, the Magi. Here are the astrologers... uh, international astrologers probably from iran they've come a great distance and they've come over a great period of time a great distance over a great period of time to to worship the king to to see the king whose birth is being announced by this peculiar star that is leading them to jerusalem and then down to bethlehem and then to this particular cave this 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 uh, stable it must have been shocking to them to have followed this star to that kind of a place. That there is something spiritually sensitive about these men who have been able to follow this star at great cost to them and at times great peril to them, to, to leave that place and to go home worshiping God for what they have seen. The story of the nativity is, is about God becoming the human son of a carpenter. It's God become flesh. It's God being squeezed down into the skin of a baby and growing up into a man. It's also about a prince of peace who brings the peace to the human heart, but it's through conflict of recognizing that we are far distance, a long distance from the place we should be in light of all of God's goodness and creativity. But it's also an encounter with God doing the impossible that leads to joy and praise in the hearts of human beings who recognize what it is that he's doing. Worship is about an encounter with a God who is bigger than the universe. Worship is about an experience of the God and an intervention of God in our heart that we become cognizant of and experience and we recognize that that God is bigger than the universe but he has come close to us. And this is what happens When human beings come, the human heart comes into the presence of something that brings about awe. Not just mundane garden variety experiences of of, of sports or or human writings or or intelligences or, or even relational kinds of things, but in something that we know we are looking at something that's not just beautiful and lovely, but we're looking at something that is beyond us that is beyond our capabilities and beyond our ability to even conjure it up. It's what happens when when human beings see something that transcends what they believe to be true about the material world. 
And it's not just the human beings that experience that. It, it's the angels too. In, in Job chapter 38, Job has, has, has really struggled, as you know, in his life with some, some unbelievably profound tragedies that I would never wish on, on, on anyone. But it's in the middle of these tragedies that God comes appearing to him and reveals himself in such a way that the Job is just struck with awe. That, that this, this vision of God is so tremendous that it sort of dwarfs all of the other things that have happened around him and to him. And in the middle of this revelation that God is giving to Job, he asks this question in chapter 38. He says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars and all the angels shouted for joy. When the angels were watching God create the heavens and the earth, and they saw all of that power and all of that creativity and all of that imagination becoming a reality and something tangible, what is it that the angels did when they saw God doing what it was He was doing? They praised Him. Do you know what the opposite of joy produced by awe is? It's despair. It's despair. It, it's, it's that place that you get in life where you fully and truly believe and completely believe that there is no hope for hope ever to come streaming in your life again. It's that place where you get, where you believe that joy is something that you will never experience ever again in this life. It's that place where you believe that, that beauty is no longer going to come and to bless your life. That's despair. It's the opposite of praise. There's a, a fellow by the name of Albert Camus who wrote a lot of books. Uh, he's an existential philosopher. He's one of these uh, uh, French guys that like to drink espresso in a cafe and write about some really depressing stuff. And there is a quote by Camus where he says, uh, beauty is unbearable. It drives us to despair. Why? Because it offers us for a minute the glimpse of an eternity that we should like to stretch out over the whole of time. So what Camus is saying is that when I look at beauty, I, I get a lot of despair because I know that that glimpse of beauty is something that I want to happen over all of my lifetime, over all of eternity, but guess what? It's not going to happen. I mean, try that as a proposal to a girl. Although the beauty I see in you today is a beauty that I wish would last forever, I know that in the end I'm going to despair because you're not going to be so beautiful in the end. Will you marry me? Real-life proposal. I don't, I'm not making this up. <laughs> uh, Ellen and I had a friend. Um, she, she got married, and she was telling us about the proposal. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, you can't make this stuff up. It's true. She told us about the proposal. She was so excited. Uh, the guy went up to her and said, you're not very pretty, but you're pretty enough for me. You're not very smart, but you're smart enough for me. Will you marry me? <laughs> I would have said no. 
out of the story of the birth of Jesus, there is the antidote for despair in a fallen and cursed, full of thorns and thistles kind of a world. We find three things in the birth of Jesus that get people to the place where they worship, and they worship God in the oddest of, of circumstances. The first thing that we learn is that you got to see big. You have to see big. This past summer, Jordan and, and myself, along with Wayne Rushing, we were in Israel back in July. And one of the last days that we were in Israel, we, we were in the Jerusalem area, went south to Bethlehem, and we went to the Church of the Nativity. And in the Church of Nativity, there are about three churches that come together over the place that traditionally all of Christian history has said, this is the place where Jesus was born. And one of the really ironic things is that as you go into these three churches and you enter into that area where you're able to kind of see a small part of this cave where they say Jesus was born, you have, there's a low threshold. Now, one of the great things about being short is I don't ever go through a door and duck. <laughs> but on this particular trip, as we were going into the place where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lord, Lords was born, the, the top of that door came to about right here on me. And before you could come in to see this place where he was born, you had to bow down. You had to bow before this place where an infant was born. The first chapter of Hebrews begins with these words. That Jesus, he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and he upholds all things by the word of his power that was the baby in verse 6 and when he again brings the firstborn into the world he says and let all the angels of god worship him in in the story of the nativity everyone is worshiping god there's Mary, there's Zechariah, there's Elizabeth, there's the angels, there's the magi, there's the shepherds, there's Anna, there's Simeon. Just about every character in the nativity story in the Gospels worships except one who happens to call himself Herod the Great. It's ironic. The name of the person who does not recognize Jesus as the one true king of all of the universe and every human part is the one who sees himself bigger he calls himself herod the great the story of the birth of jesus is a capsule of the challenge that all people in all places in all times face am i going to magnify myself Will I magnify my issues? Will I magnify my, my problems? Will I magnify something else in this life? Or will I bow down before God and worship Him as the supreme value of the universe? Worship begins, and, and the loss of despair, and, and the beginning of hope, and joy, and praise, and, and rejoicing in life begins with recognizing that God is huge. Only God in that kind of, of power and sovereignty over all of the universe, all of cre creation, could actually make himself small enough to be born a man. But it's not just seeing how big God is, it's also seeing how small we are. We have to see small. There, there's, 
there, I think that there is a real need for human beings to do this on a daily basis. I, I don't know how you begin your day. Um, I know a lot of you begin your day in prayer or with exercise or something like that. Begin your day with this over the next couple of weeks and just see what happens in terms of, of how you begin to worship God and recognize the sovereignty of God not only in the world but especially in your own life. And that is to recognize how small you are before God. See, this is the problem with a lot of discipleship in the world. A lot of discipleship in the world has to do with seeing God's love, God's love, God's love, God's love. And so all of a sudden we have created this Christianity that is man-centric rather than Christ-centric. The way that you keep humble before God is to see how small you are before His greatness and His bigness. But the despair is wiped away when you realize that this great gigantic God in which his, 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 the magnitude of his beauty dwarfs you is that this God loves you and is willing to die, his son, to die on the cross for you. Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. And then here's the word, O magnify the Lord with me. Your life is about making, your, making Him big in your heart in a world and a culture that tries to diminish Him. The humble people of God are not afraid to see themselves small in comparison to God. Mary hears a life-altering instruction from the angel. I mean, how in the world is a teenage girl going to deal with all of this? And it's by seeing herself as small in comparison to the greatness of God. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So you have to see the bigness of God. You see the smallness of yourself in comparison. And then you develop the attitude of worship. It's about being eager. Be eager. John is on the island of Patmos at the end of his life. It's a place where people are exiled. It's a place where people go to die. It's a place void of hope. It's a place that has been built, even though it's an island, it's built as an island to be a place where despair is inserted into people's life. And one day, it's in the week, it's Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, John is in the Spirit. And he sees... In chapter 7 of Revelation, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing the white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're crying out in a loud voice. Praise to God for what they have seen and what He has accomplished. There's Paul and, and Silas who are in prison after getting beat up in Philippi. And what are they doing in that prison cell? They're worshiping God. And all of these passages are a reminder to us that worship is not dependent on our emotions. I mean, everybody gets a case of the ordinaries, right? I mean, even as a preacher, you expect the preacher always fired up about Sundays. Believe it or not, every once in a while I get a case of the ordinaries. But then you begin to worship and to sing. And worship transcends the emotions. And most of the people in the nativity story are dealing really with the rough edges of life. Mary and Joseph are about to embark on the tough days with the pregnancy. 
They are going to end up having to go international for a while in Egypt. It will be a long time before they're able to get home again. You have the Magi who are traveling a long distance in order to follow this star. Can you imagine you know, you're driving around, uh, you, you stop at an, uh, a Bucky's down the road, you run into a guy who's getting a, a, a bottle of Coke and some, some uh, uh, beaver nuggets, and you say, what brings you to San Antonio? He says, well, uh, I'm following a star. I get laughed out of the Bucky's. They go into Jerusalem, and there's Herod, and they know that Herod is not this great of a guy. They're on this trip, long distance, great cost, great peril. The shepherds are scared out of their wits. Angels at night. Simeon waiting a long, long, long time. Anna been waiting a long, long time without the support of a spouse. She's a widow. But in the end, they see the greatness of what it is that God is doing. And they praise God because they see the end in this baby. They see their future in this baby. And they praise God. You know, this World Series was pretty special. Chicago Cubs, 71 years under a curse, not going to win ever again. A curse begins back uh, in the 1940s, about 1945. A, will, uh, a fellow by the name of William Cianis is the owner of the Billy Goat Tavern there in Chicago. He takes his goat to a game at Wrigley Field in 1945. This goat, and if you've been around goats enough, you know it to be true, Goat, this goat smelled so bad that he was asked to leave the stadium with his goat. You and your goat need to split. He got incensed. He said, may the Cubs, they just ain't going to win ever again. Well, the curse seemed to be in effect, and it got a little bit of traction in people's minds. Back in 2003, there's this kid by the name of Steve Bartman. He's a Chicago Cubs fan. In the eighth inning of Game 6 in the National League Championship Series, series with Chicago leading the Florida Marlins 3 to nothing. you know the famous story. Bartman interferes with a fly ball being caught that would have led to the second out. And they, the, the, they were ahead of the Marlins 3 to nothing. but because he interfered with Moises Alou in catching that ball, the out wasn't scored. They weren't just four... Uh, outs away from going to the World Series. Instead, what happened in the seventh inning, the Marlins scored eight runs immediately following that fiasco. And they lost. So we keep going and keep going, and the curse, and the curse, and the curse. And it looks like here's, here's an answer to the curse, and it's not an answer to the curse. And then all of a sudden, in 2016, the Cubs make the World Series. And it's the last out of the final game that has gone into extra innings, and it's made by uh, Chris Bryant, who 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 uh, who grabs who, you know who's going to grab this 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 grounder that's hit to him. But look at his face. Here's this little grounder that's hit to him, and he starts smiling. Game's not over, but he starts smiling. And he gets this, this little grounder that comes to him, and he makes the throw to first. And look at his face. And the throw to first is successful. It's the last out, and he jumps for joy. Why is he smiling before the play is even made? Because he knows the curse is over. He knows the curse is over. And that, that's why despair 
is, is, is such a horrible thing. And that's why when we recognize what it is that God is doing in the Christ, having lived all of our lives with the fallenness and the curse, the thorns and the thistles and all of that, that even though we're still in that fallenness, the fallenness has been driven out of us through the blood of the Christ and we can smile every day in joy because we see the end and we know that in us the curse is over. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now and maybe there are some ways that we can minister to you this morning helping you to realize that what it is that the Christ has done is the most significant thing to come into human life. And that is to know that we are forgiven, that we can call God our Father. He calls us His child. It's in love that He embraces us. We know that the curse is over because the curse was put on the Christ who came into the world, God the Son, as the son of a carpenter, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if there are some ways that we can minister to you this morning, come down, talk to our shepherds about it. For the rest of us, let's think about the greatness of the joy that has come into our life because of what happened 2,000 years ago in a cave, small town, Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem. A Savior is born unto us. Let's stand and praise God together. Joy to the world, the Lord.